Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today, we would like to talk about Germany, the German debt break, and especially the European aspect of this story, which is hardly ever discussed, both in Germany and elsewhere. In Germany, it's not discussed at all. It's all about whether it's a good thing or not to have the debt break, whether we should try to fiddle our way around it again, or whether we should reform the debt break. Debates on fiscal policy in all countries in Europe, always domestic, and there, Germany is no exception here. So let me make a short introduction to, to what happened there. The Constitutional Court a couple of weeks ago gave a ruling to say that the German budget or aspects of the German budget have been unconstitutional. This related to a couple of off-budget funds, which the coalition changed when it got into power. There was one of the funds which was already there. It's called the Climate Transformation Fund. And what they did, they put extra money from a previous, completely legal, by the way, completely legal COVID fund. They put the unspent money from that fund into the Climate Transition Fund, so bolstered it to 210 billion euros. And they also introduced an economic stabilization fund through which they would pay things like help for flood victims. There was a big flood disaster in the R region a couple of years ago. This is the kind of thing they, they would pay money, but also other subsidies for, for energy prices. For example, when Putin invaded Ukraine, the energy price subsidy that was paid to households was paid from this fund. So these things were not in the normal budget. The constitutional court said these off these off budget items in the way they were done in Germany are unconstitutional. They were used really as a way around the debt break. Everybody saw it that way, including the people who don't like the debt break were quite eager to use these off budget funds. So they had it both ways. They could pretend they would stick to the debt break and yet not stick to the debt break because that it would give them some money. Now, the Constitutional Court put an end to this and created a really a government crisis. This is a political crisis because this is not only a government that hasn't, you know, a government without a budget isn't isn't a government and the government is split over what to do with this thing. At, at stake, we've done the, the math. The math is actually quite difficult to do because we don't exactly know what, what kind of reserves they have and there are kind of a number of sort of technical things. But if you if you look at both funds, the, the, the spending that, that would come out of both funds. We're looking at approximately one percent of GDP. That's a fair amount of money. And some some estimates we've seen are even higher. So 40, 50 billion euros. Now Linton has already spoken about 17 billion, which relates to this one fund only, the Economic Transition Fund. And but but the Climate Fund, which is the bigger portion, they have yet to decide what to do with it. There are various things they can do. But in any case, we'll be looking at a serious, either a political, a serious political fiscal adjustment, or we're looking at, at the government trying to declare 2024 yet another emergency year, because that is the one legal way around in Germany to declare for the parliament to vote that a situation justifies an emergency. In this case, they could invoke the Ukraine war and the geopolitical situation. Legally, it would probably work, I'd say. The constitutional court has a relatively high bars, but it doesn't tell the parliament how to, it doesn't define what an emergency is. It gives the parliament the right to do so. So if the parliament says the ongoing situation is um, justifies an emergency budget. I would think on balance that would probably work. The bigger issue here is the politics of that. The FDP, you know, Lindner, Christian Lindner, the finance minister, 
the whole raison d'etre, the reason why they exist is to give to, to introduce some fiscal discipline into this coalition. And if they do this again for the fifth year running, I doubt they will survive this politically. I doubt also that their members will accept that the FDP will hold an inter internal party referendum, which although not binding on the party, may well in this situation conclude that they wanted that the party members want to leave the coalition if that were to happen that would have a big effect on the national political scene i doubt that lindner can do this so much for the background we're not want to discuss this we're not also not the, the greatest experts there are some really top people in germany who know about all the constitutional and the, the fis technical fiscal ins and out an area where where you need kind of full-time specialists for, for this kind of thing we should probably discuss is the area that probably nobody has discussed is to what extent does this affect the EU? In a few days, in a week, the finance ministers will meet in Brussels and discuss the reform of the stability pact. This is kind of a deadline because, well, and, a deadline as they come in Brussels, they can still drag on for a few more days, but it can't drag on for much longer because the new rules will have to, or the old rules, depending on whether agreement is reached or not, will kick back in again on January the 1st. If no deal is reached, the old rules, the old stability pact rules, with it's not only the 3%, that's what everybody knows, but it's the, the more serious issue is the requirement on member states to adjust their debt to GDP ratio each year by at least 2% if they are in excessive deficit is seen as too strict, rightly so. This is it's a nonsense, it's an, you know, you know, it's an economically literate uh, fixed adjustment. Commissioner proposed a more flexible arrangement, which we thought was fairly sensible. The Germans objected to it because it was negotiated rather than imposed. They wanted a system that was the same for everybody rather than negotiated with governments because they feared that if everybody gets their own negotiation in, then we'll have diversions. So the question now arises, what happens if we get a deal? What kind of deal will it be? And what will be the impact of this on on other EU countries, both the direct, direct impact of a German fiscal contraction and also the politics of the stability pact discussions ahead. Just to be clear, I think uh, when the Germans don't want the politics interfere in the reduction of uh, that uh, of that stability pact, it's actually them and their own politics that are actually coming forward and change the rules by introducing the Schuldenbremse uh, and, and uh, in, into the constitution. So that was a political decision from Germany that puts everyone on hold. Uh, so now for them, they know that constitutionally they are bound to adhere to these rules. And it's actually, uh, it's up to the others who don't have the same rules. <clears throat> and it's implicitly forcing the others to vote in a similar way and therefore deprive them of the political uh, initiatives to, to have different choices and as certain degrees, of course. But I know, for example, when you take France, the idea of 2% reduction uh, it's not even written in any of their the budget plans. We have a budget plan that foresees a one percentage point reduction in their debt by 2027 from now on. Very far from what uh, the pact would actually wanted to see because France is likely to get into an excessive deficit pre uh, procedure like others as well. There is already an, uh, a political conflict uh, brewing up here ahead of December 8th. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's December 8th, the ECOFIN meeting. Yeah, so I mean, you know, France is 
already kind of been singled out by the commission. It's its budget for next year particularly, but there will be difficulties for other countries too. For instance, if you look at Italian budget planning, I think it's 2026 is when they next foresee actually being able to get underneath the uh, 3% uh, deficit rule. Again, if you look at the planning for the next few years, the debt to GDP ratio is they're planning on leaving that largely flat. That's obviously not compliant with the stability pact going into next year either. I think as well, an important feature of the negotiations since the commission's proposal has basically been the lack of leverage that Germany's opponents have over this. The lack of leverage comes from the fact that if there's no agreement on reform, then the old rules kick in next year. Either you can accept a version of the stability pact reform that is more to Christian Lindner's liking, or you can simply wait for the, for the old rules to come in next year. And that's the position that everybody's in. There are some forms of leverage that some countries can try and use. And this has potentially been one of the reasons why Italy is holding out over ESM ratification. But it, and, I, and I've written this before, if you think about Italian ESM ratification and holding that as your form of leverage, it, it's kind of like taking yourself hostage. I agree with that. I, I worry more about the divergence rather than the institutional divergence, the actual economic divergence. If Germany goes down a path and the EU were to go down another path, and even with the Reform Stability Pact, the EU would still go down another path. I remember when we the Germans introduced the debt break, the criticism that we and some others had at the time was that it would produce a massive fiscal divergence over many years. And the fiscal divergence would mean that Germany will hardly ever issue any more debt. That obviously wasn't the case because of the pandemic, but in the long run, that is likely to be the case. So here's the most solid country achieving a debt to GDP ratio, not only of 60, Germany is very close to 60, but possibly undershooting the 60% over a long period by wide, by a quite margin. If Germany has only 0% debt per year or 0.35%, which is the official limit, debt per year, then over a long period of time, one would expect the debt to GDP ratio to fall. And I, I remember once doing a calculation on certain assumptions, I got to some kind of a number of 20%. The, you can change your assumptions, but it would be a debt to GDP ratio that would completely be out of sync with that of the rest of the EU. And now imagine the dynamics of a debt crisis in the Eurozone, where Germany, your A rated benchmark, has no debt. And where France, as you just said, and France, I think, is probably the country we need to look at, uh, not only Italy, but France, has a debt-to-GDP ratio of, I don't know, what is it now, 110? 108. Yeah, okay. And, uh, but, but likely to rise or stabilize or, or rise at, from, this, from this level. Budget deficits of over 5% this year. Likely to stay that, that high if the economy is weaker than you know, we expected. Now, the German fiscal shock itself will lead to a weakening of the German economy. We've been writing about estimates by various economists from between half a percent to one percentage point in growth. If you have an impact of that nature, that will in- impact European, the growth of neighboring countries. That in turn will drive up deficits unless you really manage those deficits. I fear that we are basically running into a a situation of extreme fiscal diversions. Even if the position of France and Italy were technically compliant with whatever stability pact we will have at the time, the reality of these diversions will still be the same. Investors will at one point realize that there are two eurozones, one in which they can invest and one in which they can't, especially if there's any doubt about bailout. And the idea, and we've been writing this for a while, that the ECB will do this forever, that the ECB will always stabilize bond yields 
Now, it's possible. Now, I can't completely you know, deny the possibility, but then we're looking at very different types of crisis if the ECB were to basically prioritize, produce sort of a, a monetary bailout of highly indebted countries. I fear that this is not a good development for the Eurozone. It's worth actually making that distinction between a crisis that would be induced by not compliance by the rules and the divergence that results on different degrees of commitment to these roles and what it means for the ECB. And I think there's the other aspect, which is much more structural, with which the uh, the German government has to struggle with, is how to finance the big issues of our times, like climate change, these big investments. And partly I'm raising this because that's, this is something that the French very f feel very strongly about, that it is about investing into new growth centers, industries. I, th I see there also a divergence coming about that actually divides uh, Europe also on structural issues. We saw that part of these funds that Germany wanted to commit to was to build uh, semiconductor sites on German soil. It was the ambition of Robert Habeck to turn Germany into a sort of semiconductor hub just to become a little bit more independent of the, the Chinese and Taiwanese uh, production. So that was the role that um, Germany carved itself out in, inside the European growth model. So the, the French, they took a different approach. They focused a lot on battery sites, but also on other and transport and, and high, other high-tech elements. But basically, the question still is, for me, you say it's unconstitutional. Is this, these funds, I mean, you can't finance them out of a normal budget because they're just so vast. You just have to have some form of financial tools in order to finance these long, big commitments because they're not just an annual commitment. It's like a long-term commitment to a strategy whether you have France, the nuclear power stations is another thing of how to think about energy in a different way. Um, so they're all kind of big commitments that go over decades. And my question is there, is that not more worrying to look at these kind of uh, trends and divergences uh, that it will manifest itself, these choices, and also the, the availability of choices, it manifests itself also in constraints that the Germans are, the German government is now facing to face these challenges. I don't want to prefigure whether another crisis is going to emerge or not. But even if another crisis doesn't emerge or not, that suggests that there's going to be a fundamental misalignment in priorities. That you're going to have a desire from other EU countries to move forward and invest more in these areas to focus on in the years and decades to come, which will need quite a lot of investment. But then you'll have Germany, on the other hand, engaging in this kind of pattern of fiscal consolidation, I guess, this, this kind of pro-cyclical fiscal pattern, and not being on the same page as the these other countries. That will also be a question then for these other countries is fundamentally kind of what do you do? It will cause problems for everybody else in their attempts to invest in decarbonization, invest in turning their economies into higher tech economies, invest in replenishing infrastructure if the EU's largest economy is just not doing that. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem, um, what Zazana just talked about is how, I mean, raising the, the issue of how do we actually spend money? How do we actually invest? And there are various ways. The one, one is the German idea of off budget finance, which has now been shot to pieces. The other is the idea of exempting investment from the Maastricht Treaties rule, which Germany has politically shot to pieces. So we don't have a a strategy for that. And and therefore, it will, as of now, be have to be brought back into the budget. That's where we are today. And I think one of the questions we will need to raise is how do we fund this? 
And my answer to this, as, as it always is, that needs to be funded by the EU. If you ever wanted a, a justification for a Eurobond, that would be the one to have a huge facility that would invest in these future both technologies and climate change, climate change transition. This should not be really be done at the national level. And then let the national countries fulfill the requirement of whatever fiscal rule they have imposed on themselves. That would be one way of solving the problem that maybe this crisis will trigger a solution. I mean, this is the most optimistic scenario. The more pessimistic scenario, I think, is the one that Jack just outlined, where we all struggle, each by ourselves with all our domestic constraints and eventually a crisis comes at the moment doesn't look like it at the moment the spreads are behaving well but we remembered from the previous crisis they did until they didn't this can happen from from a day from one day to the next yes. investors are not rational in that sense they follow one line and then they follow another line information about europe it's very scattered they were initially panicking about Giorgio Meloni now they're completely complacent about anything that happens in Italy because they feel that Meloni is responsible because she's pro-NATO and supports the EU in, in all its big policy decisions you know, I'm not so sure that this is the case I, you know, we have to see what happens when, if and when Italy comes on, under pressure and how her government reacts there's still a lot of people in that government who are not friendly towards the EU so I'm what I see in Germany is particularly worrying I feel for the future both of the uh, you know of our economies of our climate transition and for also for the cohesion of the eu unless there were a leader who basically said look we have these issues there is no chance that macron or anybody would go to the next european summit and says listen listen we have to sort out this mess what does anyone think there is yeah yeah it's um it's difficult and i well firstly just another point on this crisis thing as well it's also the case of course that problems within the financial system can begin somewhere else and they, and then they can end up implicating into a debt crisis which is to say that it doesn't necessarily begin with a problem with sovereign debt but it can later involve a problem with sovereign debt so it's it's conceivable that something goes wrong somewhere that we don't fully quite understand yet and as a result of that, it kind of drags this into the picture. I mean, to a certain extent, that was what happened the last time around, where this happened as an after effect of the 2008 financial crisis. And that was a case of something else happening. And then it ended up becoming the debt. Then it ended up becoming other stuff as well as the debt because it was a banking crisis. And then it was the debt again and so on and so forth. And so that, that's the first thing about this. And the, se and the second thing really to this point is that there are kind of structural needs even outside of a crisis. And you could almost, I guess if you wanted to be a bit contrary, paint a scenario in which the crisis is actually the better case scenario because it gives everybody an impetus to like do something versus a scenario in which everybody kind of stumbles around and only pursues their short-term political objectives, but doesn't really deal with the wider structural and long-term issues that are staring us in the face. And just kind of on the climate thing specifically, a final point on this, of course, is that we're talking about legally binding debt limits in Germany, but it's also important to remember that at both the EU level and the national level, governments have legally binding climate objectives. You wrote, Suzanne, about kind of various different court rulings on uh, emissions reductions plans. Uh, these are not just empty promises. These are legal commitments that governments have made. When governments do not enact the laws that they have put into place, the judicial system will spring in to do something about that. It's not just something that we've seen in Germany. It's, as you said, something that we've seen in Belgium. We've seen it in the United Kingdom, too. 
And this start, this will then start to become a problem. You know, you have the kind of unstoppable force of rules like the debt break against the immovable object of the fact that we've set legally binding uh, emissions targets. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the numbers, I mean, this is, for example, in Germany, these investments that they wanted to make, it's about 1% of GDP, about 40, 50 billion per year. Uh, think about this climate transition fund, it's about 200 billion over five years, about 40 billion per year. What this coalition did when they got to power is, this is a three-party coalition. The SPD wanted to, to raise the minimum wage and increase the fiscal transfers to the soft, the unemployment welfare nexus, sort of undo some of the reforms that their own government did in 15 years ago. The FDP wanted subsidies to their own clientele and the Greens wanted to fund the energy transition. So everybody pretty much got what they wanted. You know, I, I wouldn't have thought that 1% of investment is all that much. I think countries should be able to do that. It just means they can't do everything everything else they want. But if we think this is a priority, then there are certain things we can't do. Now, if we think that defense is also our priority, then there are costs to be paid in other areas, for example, welfare transfers, social transfers. Which is yeah. unfortunate that we in, in Europe, when we discuss policy objectives like support of Ukraine, social transfers, we have not, under budget constraints, we have assumed the money grows on trees, on green trees, and now no longer it no longer does. And no longer we have to choose between energy transition and geopolitical objectives like becoming independent of China, what Robert Harbeck suggested. I think his argument is actually fairly reasonable. problem that, that none of these coalition people have made is they have never said what they will sacrifice. And it's a matter of prior and pol- politics is a matter of prioritizing and choosing. We're going back to where policy used to be, where it used to be. That used to be the case that you could do this or that or that, but not all things together. That's what's going to happen. So, and I don't think they will in the in the long run cut investments, but I think we will see cuts in social transfers or cuts in defense spending if people don't want that. That's why I also wonder whether the defense spending commitments that gov- countries have undertaken, whether that will be politically sustainable if once people realize that there is a cost associated to them, which is something they did not realize when Olaf Scholz said, oh, there's a change of era. It was a cost-free change of era until today. We see that uh, it's easy to make a commitment and it's so hard to enact it. Uh, we see it also in other aspects, for example, growth assumptions, your assumptions in your in your budget planning. France has a budget planning where it's quite optimistic, I would say, to in, in terms of assumed growth rates and also inflation rates. So the basic assumption is that inflation eventually will come down and that uh, a full employment will be reached by 2027, which is a 5% uh, unemployment rate. So we're now... At, 7.4%. There's still uh, a bit to go to, to get there. So this would also mean that the hiring that actually we've seen directly after the pandemic, where everyone was predicting that the economy would uh, dive, but actually it didn't. Uh, employment was holding up. The economy slowed down, but employment continued to rise. We've seen the industrial sector still in this quarter, in the last quarter, rising, although 0.1%. So that's really low. The question is now, these assumptions are quite optimistic if you think about what we've, you've been writing about inflation, about core inflation. We might see headline inflation coming down, but not core inflation. There's various geopolitical risks that su- suggest that inflation uh, or supply chain uh, risks that, uh, that inflation is not so easily coming down. That also affects growth. Our growth pr- prospects are also not immune to what's going on in this world, whether it comes to energy pricing. I mean, I don't know, you, Jack, wrote about it 
energy prices come down, but for how long uh, is this kind of a something we can count on uh, for the next winter as well? So all these kind of things here is variables that. I do suggest that uh, uh, assuming that for the next year, uh, for, for the next three years, that this is like a path towards full employment, and it, it's it's a, it's a big assumption. But you can do these commitments, and they sound good, and then you come back to that, and then you say, "Well, sorry, I couldn't del- deliver," which is different for France because they only just have, have to basically explain it to the voters. It's much more difficult for the Germans, uh, German government, because they have the judges now on, on their neck. It's a very different way of how to judge. I mean, I wrote about the climate change, which is, again, the judges would come in and say, well, you have to enforce it and you have to present budgets and measures that actually match what your commitments are in terms of uh, CO2 emissions targets. In Germany, that's a fact was for, for transport and buildings, but in Belgium, it's much more of far-reaching because it imposed a, a target for CO2 emissions like 55% of the um, 1990 emissions uh, should be reached by 2030. So this is a, a target that is even bigger than the EU who actually asked the Belgium government to do. So this is uh, this will imply a, a lot of commitment, also fiscal commitment in a country that has huge public outstanding debt and has a population that is not growing but falling. So we have various risks that threaten uh, public debt sustainability in the medium and long run already because we're coming out of the pandemic and out of the energy crisis. We don't have the margins of maneuver and the comfort to say, oh, we can spare another billion here and there to do that and to, uh, to shuffle it around because they're just simply not available. So the options and choices we have are much more limited than they probably were like 10 years ago. And then there's in France, I would assume that if you started fiscal cuts in social transfers, that would presumably drive voters into the hands of the far right. Oh, 100%. Every time they even attempt something like that, it drives people into the hands of the far right. Look at look at what happened with the pension reform. <laughs> also look at kind of how rhetoric about French fiscal consolidation decades ago when Chirac failed, tried and failed to do it. Look at the political implications of that going forward into the years and decades in the future. I mean, it's very difficult because you've got this imperative for fiscal consolidation across Europe, but you also have the backwash of the political implications of really just kind of structurally weak growth over a longer period of time. That kind of backwash is now catching up with us politically. And you can see it in the kinds of electoral results that are coming out now. But but at the same time, you have this kind of imperative to save and also to try and invest in these other big structural issues that are coming to the fore. One other point that I wanted to make about this, and it's really, it might have an impact, although that impact is very difficult to predict, is it's plausible that this could set off a bit of a chain of political instability in Germany too. I think what we've seen from some other countries, uh, I think especially of the Netherlands and the United Kingdom, is that once you get into the habit of replacing governments early on, it almost becomes like a self-sustaining habit and it becomes hard to kick. If there's a prospect of this coalition not actually seeing out its term, which seems at least kind of plausible now, where does that leave everybody if you start ending up on a kind of Dutch-style merry-go-round of governments that don't see out their full terms, collapse early, uh, then then you have ele- early elections and the next government takes a while to form and collapses early and so on and so forth. Marco Söder has proposed an election next summer. The government has a majority. The only way I could see this government to lose its majority is for the FDP to pull out formally. 
Lindner has been opposed to that so far, even though several people in his parties have been urging him to do so, because uh, the view is, and I think rightly so in my view, that once you enter into a coalition, you want to really finish the job. It's not just in and out. This is not a game. You're running a country, you have responsibility. But yes, if you are in a situation where you can no longer continue because your coalition partners have positions that are life-threatening to your party, which with the FDP... We're getting to to there with the FDP. We're getting to... uh, to be there. They're polling at 5%, which is the threshold for parliamentary representation. They have lost a lot of voters to the AFD and the CDU in that, in that process. People, It's core voters that don't like the coalition very much because they feel the FDP compromises its values. It doesn't mean now that there will be new elections. What, what will happen at that point is that the SPD and the Greens could continue at least for a while in the capacity as a minority government. The question then arises, can they pass the 2025 budget? And it's possible that a compromise could be made that they make sort of a constitutionally compliant budget for 2025 with elections in the spring of 2025 so that the, this, the term wouldn't be full. But that would probably be better than having an immediate sort of collapse of the coalition and, and new elections. At least it would sort of fulfill the promise of the previous election. I believe that elections need to be honoured. And you know whether you like the outcome or not, uh, we did say this about Brexit. We did say this about parties that been came to power that we don't like. We do, however, believe that elections should not be counteract. Forcing early elections is something that I find very distasteful because it has that oh people have voted the wrong way. We'll we'll give you a second chance. A bit like this second referendum campaigns. I never liked what happened in Denmark and what happened in Ireland. These things damaged democracy. Would have damaged UK democracy too had there been a second referendum. Same thing. Same thing. There, terms should be, if possible, of course, terms should last. And you know, we see this in many countries that even countries we think of as unstable, like like Italy, their terms tend to last. They rarely have early elections. It's not it's not the common thing in Italy. It's only when they have government changes inside terms, but rarely do you have early elections. Last time, I think the early like, the elections were. I think it was six months before the term ended. Yeah, yeah, it was about it, it was about it was less than a year before the yeah. term ended, which is kind of difficult difficult to describe that fully as an early election. But yeah, and I, I think the problem is that kind of and, and again, I mentioned this with the UK and the Netherlands, which are the I think prime examples. When you get into the habit of doing this sort of thing, it's very easy to end up in a place where you continue and your politics just becomes perpetually unstable as a result. Like I'm not sure if any of Balkanenda's cabinets actually saw their full terms in government. And only one of Mark Rutte's did out of four. In the UK, really after the Brexit referendum, okay, so Theresa May calls an early election in 2017. That early election beckons another snap election in 2019 because of the inconclusive result. Afterwards, of course, you, you do have a government that looks like it will see out its term, but that government has had three prime ministers. In both cases, governments, whether they're coalitions or whether they're single party governments, become addicted to taking another roll of the dice and seeing how things turn out. Yeah, no, that's the UK's special scenario where the prime minister can so-called call elections. It's an expression, by the way, that doesn't have any equivalent in German. (laughs) You cannot call an election. It's not something that exists. And it's sort of people often in the sort of debates is whether German or French politicians would call an election. The idea that Macron would call a presidential election is completely absurd. They are basically scheduled. 
<laughs> and you know, there are crisis scenarios and procedures to change this. Every country has these procedures, but it's not something that anyone calls. You know, this would be lengthy negotiations and you know, legal, political and legal processes. Okay, on that note, let's conclude our discussion today. Thank you for listening and until next week.